Please now turn again to the book of Hebrews and chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to read verses 1 and 2, which has been our practice for the last few weeks, so that we set the context. And then having read verses 1 and 2, we will move down to read from verse 8 through verse 22. Again, as in previous weeks, I will be reading from the New King James Version uh, by way of the translation. So Hebrews 11 and verses 1 and 2, and then verse 8 through verse 22. Again, please give your careful attention. This is God's Word. Hebrews 11 at verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. And then moving down to verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith. Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, 
from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. As we have noted each week in the last few weeks, here in Hebrews 11, the author is characterizing some key aspects of the faith of the Old Testament witnesses. That's what he says in the summary, Hebrews 11.1. 1. And in connection with those key aspects of the faith of these saints, God testified of the invisible objects of hope to these saints of old. That's what he says in verse 2. And then those saints in turn responded with persevering faith to that revelation from God and became, as the author will come in chapter 12, verse 1, to give them this um, title together, the cloud of witnesses to us. Now, after the brief one-verse summaries that we've had in verses 4 through 7, the author now gives a much more extensive consideration to Abraham and his immediate succeeding generations, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so as we come to these verses this morning, we find here that the author gives a longer presentation of Abraham and his family who received God's testimony and thus themselves became witnesses to us, both through their words and actions as these are recorded in Holy Scripture. We're going to consider five things this morning. First of all, patriarchal pilgrims. Secondly, the birth of Isaac. Thirdly, the resurrection of Isaac. Fourthly, offspring testimony. And then lastly, word and event revelation. So, patriarchal pilgrims, the birth of Isaac, the resurrection of Isaac, offspring testimony, and word and event revelation. So, first of all, then, patriarchal pilgrims, verses 8 through 10 and 13 through 16. 
The author of Hebrews portrays Abraham together with Isaac and Jacob, those whom he describes as fellow heirs of the same promise. He portrays these three men as pilgrims, verse 9. They were those who wandered. They did not have a permanent home. Now, this wandering of God's people, these men and their households, at this particular time in redemptive history was necessary. Why was it necessary? Well, because it was to show to them that their inheritance was ultimately not of this world. They were not to have a permanent home here, as if this was all that was involved in the promise that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But rather, it was to show them that their inheritance ultimately was a heavenly world, which the author speaks of here in verse 10. Now, it's vitally important to see here that God did not reveal this to Abraham all at once, at a single point in his life by way of divine revelation. But rather, the Lord disclosed this to Abraham, his true inheritance, over the course of a lifetime of faith. Now, sometimes we can struggle to appreciate this, even as we read the Genesis narratives. Um, we can read them relatively quickly. Um, and sometimes it's hard for us to appreciate that this is whole lifetimes, not just of Abraham, but Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and so on. Um, but it's important to see that God revealed um, the heavenly inheritance to Abraham over the course of his life, a life led by faith. Now, the very way the author of Hebrews interprets the story of Abraham here in chapter 11, as he goes back to the Genesis narrative, the way he interprets that clearly demonstrates that God's revelation was given in this organic, progressive way. Now, remember those terms from last week. Again, if you don't remember them specifically, that's not so important, but the principles are. Remember, we said that all of God's revelation is of organic. It is of the same kind. It begins in the beginning in very condensed form, a little bit like an acorn, a seed. And it comes to full fruition in the full light of the coming of God sending His Son, Jesus Christ, when the acorn has progressed to the full-grown oak. Now, the acorn and the oak and all of the progression through the development of that in the natural world is of one and the same kind, isn't it? An acorn as a seed becomes an oak. It doesn't become anything else. It is always of that kind. That's what we mean by organic, and we see that here. It's not one kind of revelation at the beginning of Abraham's life, and then it becomes something different in the middle and something different again at the end. But it's also progressively revealed, unfolded. And uh, that's what we mean when we talk about organic, progressive 
revelation. Um, might have seemed a bit abstract last week. Well, here's a very concrete example of it here in the life of Abraham. And of course, that revelation of God wasn't even complete in the life of Abraham, nor of Isaac, nor of Jacob, nor of Moses, nor of David. It was not fully complete until the coming in the fullness of time, as Paul calls it, Galatians 4.4, in the great son of David, Jesus Christ himself. And so God's revelation of the same kind, the same hope, the same great promise, but progressively unfolded until it came to its fullest expression. And if you like the language of Hebrews, as we've been in the book of Hebrews for a long time, right back in chapter 1, you remember verse 2, the author says, in these last days, in the coming of the Son, Jesus Christ. And so we see that in the life of Abraham. When he was called by God to leave the country where he was in Ur of the Chaldees, uh, when he was called to leave his family, to leave his father's house, Genesis 12:1, what do we read? He went out not knowing where he was going. You see, he didn't have all of the unfolded revelation. He was called to go. That was what was revealed to him at this point. He had the promise that God would be his God, and he would have a great inheritance in this God, but he did not know the details. And even as he went and dwelt in the land of promise, the author here reminds us he did so as what? As one living in a foreign land, that it was not his own, Hebrews 11 verse 9. Now, Abraham's lack of an earthly inheritance is shown here very physically and very visibly, because we read that he and Isaac and Jacob, as these pilgrims, did not live in permanent dwellings. They lived in tents. Again, verse 9. Here's one commentator puts it. He says, quote, God deliberately withheld from Abraham the ownership of any real estate in Canaan as part of His unfolding revelation to him and to us. End quote. So here we see this demonstrated even in the very physical circumstances of Abraham's day-to-day -day practical life. Now, what was the result of all of this? What was God's purpose in all of this? Well, it forced Abraham to reflect then upon the real meaning and fulfillment of what we call the land promise. I will give to you a great land, and you will dwell there with all of your um, descendants. You see, as he thought about that in the connection of the circumstance of God progressively unfolding what that would mean, and of him living in Canaan, but as an alien, as one in a foreign land, living in tents, having no permanent dwelling place, it caused him to reflect upon that and to see God's purpose in that was that the ultimate fulfillment of the promise was not, as you can probably tell it came from a modern commentator, real estate in the Middle East. But that in and of itself was but a signal, a sign, a pointer to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to him, 
a heavenly country, a heavenly land. And so it was always God's purpose to withhold an earthly inheritance from Abraham for these two reasons. First of all, so that Abraham would look in faith for something greater. What the author here says in verse 10, the greatest city whose designer and builder is God. For Abraham to look and to continue to look forward and upward for that fulfillment, his real inheritance. And then the second reason was that because Abraham and his immediate fellow heirs, Isaac and Jacob, would not inherit that ultimate fulfillment of the promise apart from us, the author to the Hebrews says. Of course, writing first and foremost in the first century to believers, uh, this side of the coming of Christ, and of course, through the book of Hebrews, on from his first readers, down through the Christian church, even to us this morning. God's purpose was to show Abraham and his fellow heirs that they would not inherit apart from us, all of God's people, Jew and Gentile, for whom Christ has died. And so, uh, the author here emphasizes this point, the household of God, that great term that we hear again and again throughout Scripture. Uh, We've heard it in the book of Hebrews. We see it elsewhere. The household of God must altogether inherit. Can't be one and not another. Together, they would inherit this enduring heavenly city. And so, back now to the time of Abraham, at his point in God's purpose and history, it was by faith then that Abraham saw that heavenly homeland, that city, that greater city, and looked for it, where both he and we might say we here this morning as Christians, and all believers in between and all who will come after us until the great return and culmination of all things. Until that is all accomplished, um, he saw it by faith and not by sight. Um, He, we, and all of the church have our citizenship in that great city, in that great heavenly country. But note how it is spoken of specifically from Abraham's perspective in the time of the patriarchs. The view, the author says, was from afar, from afar. Verses 13 and 14. Now, the distance of this perspective for Abraham um, was not because of weak faith, was not because he couldn't see very well, as it were. Um, If you're getting older, you may... Uh, identify with this illustration. Um, As I get older, I don't see as well as I used to. And so certainly looking into a distance, uh, there are probably things some of our young people could see on a horizon that I can't see anymore. I've got to get a whole lot closer, or at least I've got to get something like binoculars or something to help me with that. That wasn't the issue here. It wasn't that Abraham's faith was weak. His eyes of faith were, were not able But it was because he was where he was in God's purpose at that point in redemption. 
there was still some considerable time, as we think of it as creatures of time and space, that would elapse before the coming of Christ, and then the time following that to the time appointed when Christ will return and bring all things through to completion. And so it was because Abraham, as one commentator puts it, quote, lived near the head of the stream of redemptive revelation that he viewed these things from afar. Well, that might cause us to ask, and I think it's worth pondering just for a moment, well, how much did then these patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, actually understand then of these future promised glories? Did they understand anything? Um, the text tells us they saw them from afar, but did they really have any comprehension of these things? Well, I think we should say this, though the revelation was relatively undeveloped for Abraham and his immediate descendants, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, so we're still much more near the acorn than the full-grown oak tree in God's progressive unfolding of His revelation. Nevertheless, their understanding, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, undoubtedly grew over a time, over their lifetime, as they reflected on God's faithful dealings with them. They had some measure of comprehension, and that grew and increased. What we can say, I think, is this, that God's revelation was always sufficient for them in their day to genuinely understand the heavenly blessings that God had promised, but for which they must wait. Um, how do we know that? Well, the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 56, says this concerning Abraham. You remember the Jews were making much, Abraham is our father and all of that. And they didn't make much of the Lord Jesus. And what did Jesus say to them? John 8, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And there Jesus testifies that the revelation of God in the day of Abraham was sufficient, still somewhat embryonic, still more seed form than full uh, oak tree in terms of its progressive unfolding. But Jesus could say concerning Abraham, he saw my day and was glad. And so the author of Hebrews states explicitly as we Look at verses 13 through 20, that the patriarchs knew and longed for these things, to which they bore witness, though from this perspective of distance. Their view of these things, we would say, is mediated by the circumstances of the time and uh, the age in which God had called them to live in that particular era. But nevertheless, their apprehension of God's revelation was sufficiently clear for them to believe, to apprehend the promise by faith, and to persevere patiently in awaiting God's progressive unfolding further and His fulfilling of that promise, even at last, as we still wait 
in that same way today. Well, then that brings us in the second place to the birth of Isaac, the birth of Isaac in verses 11 and 12. Now, we may wonder why the author includes the birth of Isaac, verses 11 and 12, within the larger section about Abraham's pilgrimage, his wandering in the, in the promised land, that starts in verse 8 through verse 10, and then picks up again in verses, 17, uh, in verses 13 through 16. So why does he, in the middle of this, um, talk about the birth of Isaac, then go back to Abraham again, and then in verses 17 through 19, come back to Isaac again? Um, uh, some commentators uh, suggest that seems a little chaotic in arrangement. Uh, could, it be more, could it not have been more logically organized? Well, deal with Abraham, and then yes, of course, Abraham's son is Isaac, but then deal with the birth and the, uh, what's called the, um, the offering of Isaac and Mount Moriah together. Why is it kind of interspersed in this way? Well, I don't think it is chaotic. I don't think... Um, as we might think, as sometimes we read other books, maybe the author was, was not having the best day in developing his plot. Uh, maybe you've read some books like that, and they can be very frustrating, can't they? Going, can't, why can't this be more logically ordered? That's not what's happening here in the Scripture. We remember, of course, properly and reverently, we want to say the ultimate author is God Himself, God the Holy Spirit. And God is not chaotic in the way that He reveals himself and his ways. So, there is purpose here as to why it is set out this way. And so, the human author here of Hebrews um, organizes this material as he does here because he's making a similar point with the story of Isaac as he is making with the whole theme of Abraham being a pilgrim and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being a pilgrim. What is that theme? The theme of God deliberately postponing the fulfillment of His promise in order to point them and that they would look forward to a better fulfillment to come. And that's the same theme in the birth of Isaac as it is in seeing the patriarchs as pilgrims. It's to teach them that this isn't everything that there is. Even in the physical birth of Isaac, the son of the promise, that's not the end of all things with regard to the promise of this child. And so, because those things are, as we would say, thematically tied together, that's why this comes where it does here in verses 11 and 12. God could have easily given Abraham and Sarah a natural son early on in his dealings with them, even from the beginning as we read of it in Genesis chapter 12, where God first reveals this. He could have fulfilled it right there and right then, but he did not. The Lord in His sovereign wisdom, as we think of it in a timeline, waited until it became clear that God, in so fulfilling this promise, would bring a great people from one man and him as good as dead. Hebrews 11 verse 12. That's why God did it at the time that He did, and that's why the author is dealing with that and talking about it here. 
We read this too concerning Sarah. Sarah too responded in faith to the divine testimony of the promise and received power to conceive even when she was past the age of when that would be normal. She considered him faithful, the text says, who had promised, even though she was past the age of natural childbearing, Hebrews 11, 11. And so in the birth of Isaac, it's placed here alongside the theme of the wandering pilgrimage of the patriarchs to show this is what God is doing. He delays, as we would think. He waits. He defers fulfillment in order that they look forward and to see that it's something greater than just the immediate physical fulfillment of these promises, whether it be with regard to the land of Canaan or with regard to the physical child, Isaac. Let's come to our third point then, the resurrection of Isaac, then verses 17 and 19. So now we've had Abraham, Isaac, we did Abraham again, we wrapped that all up in our first point, and then we come to the resurrection of Isaac, verses 17 through 19. And so after Isaac was born and the promise explicitly fulfilled, physically fulfilled, God then commands Abraham, if we're familiar with the Genesis narrative, to offer up his son as a sacrifice in order that Abraham would be forced, if he were to continue in faith, he would be forced to conclude that God is the one who is able to raise the dead. Just think about it for a moment. God has promised Isaac, the child of the promise, and says, through him, all the nations of the earth is going to be blessed. And then God says, when Isaac is born, and he's in his childhood, take your son, your only son, and offer him up to me on Mount Moriah as a sacrifice. Abraham has only two options at this point. He either has to conclude that God cannot be faithful to his promise if Isaac's dead. So God is not reliable to his promise. He's changed his mind for whatever reason. Or he's forced to conclude that even though Abraham offers up Isaac, Isaac will be raised from the dead because God is faithful and will fulfill His promise. Do you see? That's the purpose here. It's to cause Abraham to reflect and to think and to see that God is who He is, the faithful God. And even if it involves something that He cannot do, the raising of the dead, God is one who can do such a thing and will do such a thing if that is what it requires to fulfill his promise. That's what's going on here as the author of Hebrews uh, thinks about this narrative of the offering up of Isaac. Now, when we often think about it, particularly as we're reading the extended narrative in Genesis, we tend to focus immediately and perhaps exclusively on the picture of substitution. And of course, we know the story. Uh, as Abraham lifts his uh, knife to plunge it into Isaac, um, God speaks, stay, uh, don't do it. 
and God provides a substitute, the ram caught in the thicket. Um, that, of course, is a proper and very central biblical theme in that narrative. But that's not what the author of Hebrews is focusing on here, uh, the theme and doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Rather, what his focus is here is that of resurrection from the dead. And so the author, he appoints to the event of the offering up of Isaac as driving Abraham to this conclusion that a resurrection from the dead awaits. And, of course, he puts it in that very language, doesn't he? Verse 19, for Abraham did receive Isaac back in resurrection, though, of course, it was figuratively speaking. It wasn't physically speaking because God stayed Abraham's hand before he plunged the knife into Isaac. But the whole point was the theme, the picture of resurrection. And that's what the author here is focusing on verse 19. And that's why uh, in this section many uh, scholars and commentators um, don't entitle it the offering of Isaac. They actually entitle it the resurrection of Isaac. Because physically, uh, f- uh, um, uh, figuratively speaking, Abraham receives him back uh, by resurrection from the dead. Well then that brings us in the fourth place to offspring testimony, verses 20 through 22 offspring testimony. Here we move from Abraham to his immediate family descendants, his offspring, and they too testify to these unseen realities, the great hope of the heavenly country and the eternal city, even as their forefather Abraham did. So here in these verses we turn to Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Uh, Again, we're back to brief Um, uh, description here, rather an extended uh, narrative. Um, But having received divine testimony of the invisible things to come, they are fellow heirs of the promise with Abraham, the author tells us. Then these individuals too, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, responded with persevering faith, and hence through that bear testimony to us, again, of these realities. Let's just walk briefly through each of them. Um, When Abraham died, the Lord appeared to Isaac. We read Genesis 26, verses 1 through 6. Confirmed to him the promises made to his father Abraham. Now, as with the other Old Testament saints, the author of Hebrews here doesn't comment extensively on this. Uh, He does not give us all the details from that Genesis narrative. The author here simply declares... Isaac's persevering, believing response to God's revelation to him. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau, verse 20. Now, we may wonder, and perhaps we don't have an answer, as to why the author chose this particular uh, event in the life of um, Jacob, uh, of Isaac, uh, to... Um, show his persevering faith. Uh, Were there not others he could have chosen? No doubt. Um, Perhaps the best answer is because this is, you know, even at the point at the end of his life, as he is facing death and and not receiving the full fruition of the fulfillment of the promise, yet he still believed 
And how did he demonstrate that? By passing on the blessing, invoking the blessing on his sons. But he didn't die in a frustrated hope that had not delivered. He understood that he was still somewhat afar from God's fulfillment, and he would die in faith, awaiting but in certain hope of God's fulfillment, and he passes this on. And so we uh, read here, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob went on, of course, to know, as we know, to have 12 sons. He blessed them all before he died with uh, predictions appropriate to each one of them. That's the extended narrative, Genesis 49, verses 1 through 28. Again, we should be getting used to the pattern now in Hebrews 11. The author here mentions only Jacob's blessing of Joseph's sons, verse 21, that in fact comes from Genesis 48, verses 1 through 22. Um, again, the author is very condensed, focused here, uh, the author of Hebrews, that is. Um, and so he only mentions the fact of the blessing as a believing response in God's promises, even in the face of death. Joseph, the last offspring that's mentioned by the author here. Again, he's singled out from all the sons of Jacob to com complete the witness of the offspring of Abraham. So we read in verse 22, By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Um, this incident, which is very familiar to many of us, of course, again, reflects Joseph's trust, his persevering faith, uh, even though he's in the land of Egypt. So, how is this going to be fulfilled? It's, you know, not going to be fulfilled in his day. He, he, he knows that his bones are going to be buried at least at first in Egypt. Yet he knows God has promised, uh, first of all, the physical fulfillment of uh, giving the land uh, to the descendants, Abraham, Isaac, of Jacob, and then ultimately, of course, to the great heavenly land, the heavenly Canaan. And he expresses this again in a very tangible way, very concrete way. For he gives instruction that the Israelites should carry his bones with them when they went up out of Egypt. Uh, we read of that Genesis 50 and 24 through 25. Again, sometimes uh, people say of the Christian faith, well, you know, this faith thing, it's, it's kind of very nebulous. You know, it, it doesn't really, it's not very concrete. It was for these saints, wasn't it? They ordered their very physical lives according to these promises. And we see it in Abraham, we see it in Isaac, we see it in Jacob, we see it in Joseph's, Joseph. And as we reflect on that, so what does that have to say to us? Well, Joseph's confidence in being taken to the promised land of Canaan after his death reinforces that hope for us that there is a final rest in the heavenly Canaan for all those who die in Jesus. If the Lord does not return, then we will die in this world and our bodies will be laid to rest in our graves, brothers and sisters. Um, we had that example just a few weeks ago when our sister Thelma went to glory. We laid to rest her body in her grave. 
But here the picture of Joseph shows us that she and none of us have to leave instructions. Don't leave my body in this world. Don't leave my bones in this world. We don't have to tell anybody else of the people of God to make sure that doesn't happen. Because on the last great day when resurrection day comes, all of those bodies will rise. And they will be transformed into a glorious resurrection body. And they won't be carried by a physical descendant. But they will be transported in the glory of the great resurrection. To be with the Lord forever and ever and ever. Reunited with souls. To be in that state of glorification. That's what's pictured here. It's very concrete, isn't it? It's very encouraging, I trust, to our faith this morning. Uh, that something that sometimes seems, seems so long ago, and it is a long time ago, since Joseph uh, persevered in faith in this world, but it still speaks so clearly to us today that we too persevere by faith in the promise of a God who will deliver on His Word. Well, that brings us in the fifth place then to word and event revelation. Word and event revelation. From all we've seen here, the author of Hebrews not only regarded God's words as his revelation, but he also sees the events recorded in Scripture as also God's revelation. They too are what we call revelatory. In other words, as the author would say, they all speak of God's great purpose and promise, both His word of revelation and the events of redemptive history. We see this in the way that the author of Hebrews, again, interprets all of these historical narratives of the patriarchs. Did you notice that as we were going through? It's, it's, it's repeated again and again. By words, God testified to Abraham of a future inheritance and of natural descendants, and by repeating those promises and sealing them with an oath-bound covenant. That's God's word, Revelation, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. By event, God, as we saw, held off fulfilling His promises immediately, held off fulfilling even the earthly fulfillment with regard to giving the land to Abraham. He was an alien. He was as a foreigner in the land, living in tents. And with regard to Isaac, did not give the son of the promise immediately after saying that they would have this child. God, by events, um, was also revealing and was revealing this great truth so that Abraham and his heirs were led in time to, as we read in verse 16, to long for a better country. That is a heavenly one which God prepared. Um, so by both word and event, God was revealing his purposes. And we see their response, a response of faith, but a response that recognized there would have to be a patient waiting for it. There was a longing for it, but they didn't yet have it. 
And therefore, even the events of Abraham's life here were directed by God to, to be revelation to him. Not just his words, but the way in which, as we might say, providence unfolded in these things were to teach him. Now, if God's testimony came to our forefathers, the patriarchs, through word and event, um, so also we should see that the patriarchs' testimony to us, as recorded in Scripture, in their words and in their lives, events, are revelation to us, are God's unfolding purpose being fulfilled and unfolded before us. Notice particularly here as an example of this how the author of Hebrews points to the word, verbal testimony of Abraham and of Jacob. What does he say concerning them? Verses 13 and 14. That they acknowledged. Um, that word might be better translated, they confessed. They confessed that they were aliens on earth who looked for a heavenly homeland. Um, it was a form of testimony, wasn't it, as they did this, as they acknowledged, as they confessed these things. It was a form of testimony to the reality that these things existed, but they did not yet have full possession of them, yet they had this living hope that God would give it to them. Um, the act of acknowledging or confessing um, and seeing that as a form of testimony is common throughout the Scriptures. Um, um, and it, we see it in the New Testament as well. Now, we don't have time to go into the detail of this, but if, for instance, you look up John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, the word is used in that way, confessing as a form of testimony. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 12 through 13, uh, again, Paul uh, uses the word again in that very same way. And that's what's happening here in Hebrews 11, 13, 14. The author says that the patriarchs confessed, they acknowledged these things as testifying to them. Well, there's their words. Now, what about their actions? What about the events of their lives? Well, they refused to turn back to an earthly homeland. They had opportunity to do so. They did not, verse 15. The event again of Abraham offering the son of the promise, verse 17. Again, an event of his life is testimony to his persevering faith. These things speak to us as witness of those unseen things in which we as believers this morning, as Christians, too hope for and we trust by God's grace, persevering faith, waiting for. What are we waiting for? In principle, the same thing life from the dead, resurrection, and a heavenly homeland, the ultimate Canaan above. Because the author here is at great pains in Hebrews to show that neither Abraham nor any other Old Testament saint actually inherited the final form of the promised inheritance, that something better, as the author of Hebrews calls it, Verses 39 and 40. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and on and on, all of the Old Testament saints, they did not yet inherit the final consummate promised inheritance. They only had that shadowy foretaste, as we would say, uh, to encourage them to look forward 
but yet still wait in faith. But as we said, nevertheless, the Old Testament saints were indeed heirs of the same promise as we are, this side of Christ's coming, so that we too should heed their testimony. Now, I've made much in these last few weeks of saying the primary focus of Hebrews 11 is the Old Testament saints are witnesses. But that does not mean that they are not examples. And I hope you heard me clearly when we started this. I said that. Go back to Hebrews 6 to see that. They are to be examples to us as well. They are first witnesses, but they're also to be examples. And it's worth us pondering just for a moment as we're closing uh, this morning to, to ponder that. What did the author say back in Hebrews chapter 6 concerning the Old Testament saints? Well, he starts in verse 12, Hebrews 6, by saying this, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. There's a great application and challenge to our hearts this morning. You've seen the great um, way in which Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, by God's grace, persevered in faith. So the author says, we are to be imitators of them by God's same grace. Hebrews 6 verse 13, he goes on to say, For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, see how the author fast forwards from Abraham to the readers of his day and to us. He says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Brother, sister, is your, weak, is your faith weak this morning, wavering? Here is great encouragement for your faith. I cannot say to you, just do better, try harder. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Be stronger in faith. Here is where strength of faith comes from, by going back to the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and His promise, and the oath that God Himself bound Himself by, not because He needed it, but because He knew we did. And so, as it were, as you see often in those courtrooms, God Himself put His right hand in the air to guarantee the absolute reliability of His promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and to you, Christian, this morning. Because the author of Hebrews here shows us clearly that God's Old Testament revelation to these patriarchs was ultimately orientated 
to come to fruition, as we might say, on the stage of worldwide fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ and His great salvation for Jew and Gentile. That's why Jesus could say, Abraham saw my day and was glad. John 8, 56. The same point is made over and over again in the New Testament. Paul does it in Romans 4, 23 through 25. Galatians 3, 8. Peter does the same thing, 1 Peter 1, 11 and 12. What is it that we are to imitate then as we close? Let me just line out three uh, applications here. How are we to persevere in that same kind of faith, to have that characterized faith of which the author speaks in Hebrews 11? Three ways. First, they looked forward in faith to the promised inheritance, to the city that is foundations, who designer and builder is God, a better heavenly country. Are we looking forward to that this morning, brothers and sisters? Is that where our hope lies? Or is our eyes down and looking to this world for our satisfaction and ultimately for what we think will make us happy? They looked upward and forward, brothers and sisters, so we should as well. Secondly, they trust in the faithfulness of God to fulfill His promises, both in the present and in the future whether that was to receive physical land under the Old Covenant. They would have to wait till the time of Joshua before they received that as possessing it. But God was faithful, and they did. Abraham had to wait for Isaac to be born. God did not give it to him immediately that He gave him the promise the first time. But they trusted in the faithfulness of God to fulfill His promise both in the present and the ultimate fulfillment. The one to whom the physical Canaan pointed, the heavenly country, and the one to whom the son of the promise Isaac pointed, ultimately, the great son, Jesus Christ the Lord. Thirdly, and this is with regard specifically to Abraham, he trusted that God could even raise the dead. Do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that? In Romans 4, 16 through 25, Paul focuses on this fact that Abraham believed that God had the power to fulfill his promise with regard to Isaac, even raising him from the dead. And how does Paul apply that to New Covenant Christians? Does he just see that as an interesting um, illustration of faith in the Old Testament? It is that, but he, he has a much more specific application of that in Romans 4. He likens that to the Christians believing in the one who raised Jesus Christ our Lord from the dead. See how he connects the two acts of faith. Abraham's belief in God, he raised Isaac from the dead, and the Christian's belief that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead because immediately after Romans 4 when he's gone and said Christ was raised for our justification, what does he then write? We call it Romans 5.1. Paul wouldn't have called it Romans 5.1. He's just continued to write Romans. But he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. 5.1, therefore, we have peace with God, he says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. How can he say that? 
because he believes, as all Christians believe, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead in vindication of his great work of fulfilling all righteousness, of penalty payment for sin, that that is accepted by God even for the great justification of sinners. Christian, look upward and forward in faith to the promised inheritance. Trust in the faithfulness of God to fulfill His promises both in the present and the ultimate fulfillment on the last great day. And thirdly, believe in the God who raises the dead. Our Lord Jesus Christ as firstfruits, and then us as those united by faith to Him on the last great day, even to dwell in that heavenly city forever and ever. May God so help us. Amen. Father in heaven, we are thankful for the encouragement You give to our faith. We often need it, O Lord, and we are thankful for Your uh, great provision for our weakness and our struggle. We pray as we are those who are pilgrims walking through this world as were Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We ask, O Lord, that You would strengthen our faith. Grant us to look upward and forward. Grant us to believe in the one that You are who fulfills all Your promises in the present and in the future. And grant us to believe in the great resurrection of the dead, first of our Lord Jesus Christ as firstfruits, and then all who are united to Him by faith. Here is we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.